Hey everybody, it's Michael here, and you're listening to the Good E-Reader Radio Show.
Hey everybody, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and I'm joined today, like I am every Monday, by Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. What's going on? Not much, Michael. How are you? I'm doing good. So, I guess the big news right now has to do with Amazon Publishing and how superstar agent Larry Kirschbaum went back to being an agent after running the publishing division in New York uh, for, I guess it's been, what, two years or so now? Roughly. Okay, so what do you know about this story? Officially, what the company has said is that January 17th, Larry Kirschbaum will no longer be an employee and will go back to being an agent, which is what he was beforehand. He's also obviously run large publishing companies before Amazon Publishing. Um, Daphne Durham, who has been with Amazon since 1999 in various roles, basically an Amazon lifer, um, was editor-in-chief of Amazon Publishing, will be taking over as publisher. Now, the interesting thing here is that a lot of the media is speculating that this is Amazon admitting defeat or pulling back or retreating from its New York publishing operation. Uh, the company has denied that up and down and said, we are launching new imprints. We can't talk about it right now, but this is not any sort of retreat. This is just a change in leadership. I think the one fact that you, know, you really want to consider here while you weigh whether the media is right or whether Amazon's telling the truth or whatever is that um, the new publisher, Durham, will be based in Seattle, not in New York. Uh, and I think that when you think about how companies focus their attention, you know, understanding where their leadership is based is actually really important. Well, it looks like Amazon Publishing has a lot of imprints. They have an imprint that focuses on biographies. Uh, they have, what, like Two Lions, Skyscape. Uh, they have a lot of different imprints. But, I mean, Amazon's one of those companies that really never divulges the success or, or, or lack thereof uh, of their imprints. Um, being in New York... How how much of a player is Amazon in bidding for books, you know, for exclusives? And, you know, in the New York scene, you know, you have pretty well all the major publishers there with, like, head offices. What's Amazon – how do you rank them amongst, like, the, the top publishers there? You know, by all reports, Amazon wanted to compete and may still want to compete with the big six or the big five for, for those big books and, and splashing around some money. And the company did. The company did spend money on, on getting some, some big books by big authors. Um, what people are speculating, in which you can verify by looking at Nielsen data and other data, is that uh, some of these publishing bets may not have paid off uh, the way that the company wanted to, and maybe not to the satisfaction of the authors and agents involved either. And again, this is all speculation. Um, but if that is the case, uh, and, and if Amazon is retreating, that, that could be the reason why. Um, but by all accounts, the company did want to splash around a lot of money. I would say with the publisher being in Seattle, it might be a little bit harder to do that. Um, you know, being on the ground for these high-level meetings um, where big, big dollars are involved uh, could be a difference maker uh, between winning and losing in bids. So I think the company did want to compete at that very high level. Uh, it may still want to compete at that very high level. Um, and I think if you, if you want to blame anyone for 
a retreat, if this is in, indeed that, you might want to look at Barnes & Noble and the American Booksellers Association. Uh, reportedly, it was very hard for Amazon to get some of these big books that it bought and published into Barnes & Noble stores and into um, the, the member stores of the American Booksellers Association, the, the independent bookstores. Uh, and when you don't have print distribution through bookstores, uh, it's really hard to sell print books. Uh, Amazon does sell a lot of print books, but, but so do bookstores. Yeah, I remember when Amazon first announced their sort of endeavor to start publishing books, Barnes & Noble almost right away was saying, we're not going to stock any of these books in our bookstores from Amazon. We'll stock the e we'll stop like digital editions, but we won't actually stock like the physical books. So, I'm wondering if like the backlash from the bookstores saying we're not going to carry your books played a role almost in what's going on right now. I mean, it absolutely could have. Uh, again, this is speculation, but if you are if you if you buy a book and you're publisher of a book and you're unable to get that book onto the shelves of Barnes and Noble, uh, probably the author and agent that you worked with are not going to be happy, and probably it's going to be hard for you to sell a lot of print copies and make the money that you spent back. Yeah, it's this is a, a weird situation because like Amazon in terms of publishing, they really haven't had like a huge track record, maybe like a few years, but it seems like they've only really sort of launched a lot of imprints really just in, in 2013. So it, this will be an interesting story to follow. And it seems that if the head guy at the top is leaving, that sort of puts them in a difficult position because Kirschbaum was pretty well a gangster in terms of like, book publishing in New York like he's he's from what I understand he's a bit of a legend you know it's sort of if you have him repping you you're almost like assured success well you know Kirschbaum obviously has a very strong reputation in the publishing world and you know getting him was a big win uh, for, for Amazon um, so we will see going forward what kinds of big buys Amazon makes if any and I think what we'll also be telling is looking at bestseller lists and seeing uh, if Amazon Publishing uh, makes it onto the list. On the Digital Book World ebook bestseller list, we've seen the company uh, hit the list several times this year, um, but maybe a little bit less than you might expect given the clout it has in terms of distribution through its own website. Speaking of best-selling books, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Fifty Shades of Grey. And it's been one of those unbridled successes in the publishing world. So I guess I've read a report on Digital Book World about how Fifty Shades of Grey, it is a huge success, but libraries are spending a lot of money. Yeah. Um, th this story that we, that we sort of led the way on uh, last week uh, came out of a conference call that the American Library Association held for its members and for some members of the press to understand you know, what it was doing on their behalf in terms of ebooks and publishers. And one of the librarians on the call talked about her own library's uh, spending on Fifty Shades of Grey. And, and the example was meant to illustrate to librarians, you know, hey, this cost a lot of money, and we need to get these publishers to lower their ebook prices. Um, but basically, the, the story is that uh, the Cleveland, the library system that services Cleveland, Cuyahoga County, um, spent almost $24,000 buying 300 ebook copies of Fifty Shades of Grey. And that's just the first book. That's not uh, the other two books. That's not the print copies as well. So you can imagine how much money this library system spent on uh, the Fifty Shades of Grey franchise. And you know, the question for me wasn't, 
like why are they buying so many copies of Fifty Shades of Grey, or, or or the fact that it really was less about the amount of money that they had to spend on each copy, uh, and more about you know that librarians, it seems to me, are not really doing the kind of accounting for what their mission is and how they can execute it that they need to do in light of what's happening with eBooks. So they say, well, eBooks are too expensive and our people are demanding them, so you need to make them cheaper. Um, then they go ahead and spend nearly $24,000 on this, on this digital product for their patrons. Um, and it's just, just one library system, and then they complain that you know, we, we, we don't have the resources to do the things we need to do. I know I would argue that the library should think intelligently about this. I understand a lot of patrons are asking for Fifty Shades of Grey, but if the cost is $78 a copy, you know, the library might think about some better things it can do with that $20,000 that it spent. Maybe buy a few copies and then say, hey, this is too expensive for us. Uh, and then use it in, in other ways. It just seems like unthinking and irresponsible. And librarians will say, well, it's not our job to determine what's important literature. We, we go with what our patrons want, with what they want to read. Um, but, but let's say each copy was $1,000 or $5,000 a copy. How many copies would the library have bought then? I mean, isn't there a point at which they say, we need to make a human decision and say this is unreasonable? And the second point there is that if you are a librarian, and you want to send a message to publishers that their prices are too high, stop paying them. It's as simple as that. If the price is too high for something, the market won't allow it. By buying all of those eBooks at that price, the libraries are saying, that price isn't too high. That price is just right. Yeah, I mean, this has been a huge issue, I guess, in AILA for the last few years. I mean, I'm usually in regular contact with them, and you know, the one thing that they have going for them is they played an instrumental role in bringing a lot of these publishers on board with like pilot projects with like Penguin and things like that. And, Absolutely. You know, they were successful doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, they've done a really good job about bringing everyone on board. And now it's just a matter of finding that sweet spot in terms of the number of loans before you have to buy the book again. Um, I, you know, I, I really don't even dig that entire concept. I mean, you lend a book out 24 times and you have to buy it all over again. I just, for me, that's like not sustainable because you buy a physical book once and you can lend it out until it basically disintegrates, it gets stolen, it gets blown up, you know, whatever, right? And I don't. Sure, but, but you know, that, that happens to physical books, but it doesn't happen to ebooks. And so that's why the publishers are doing that. But also consider this the libraries survive partially on the fact that people donate books to them from their collections. And they also survive partially on the fact that, let's say there is a big bestseller like Fifty Shades of Grey. They can buy a whole bunch of copies on it, and then they can sell them to used bookstores or, or other places that, that might want to use them. You can't do that with eBooks. So they're not only they're paying $78 a copy, no, one's gonna do, no one can donate copies to them, first of all. And second of all, they can't resell them in any other, any other spot. So it just seems to me like a really irresponsible use of funds, no matter how much in demand the book is. You know, it's kind of funny you kind of mentioned about used bookstores. I was kind of thinking the other day that digital books are almost eroding used books. I, I know mm -hmm. here in Vancouver, a lot of used bookstores have closed. And I haven't really talked to them directly about it, but I have a feeling it's because of ebooks. And it's just so easy to buy an ebook now that it's sort of killing that sort of secondary used market because 
if you walk into a used bookstore, there's a lot of fantasy, there's a lot of science fiction, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Harlequin romance books, uh, there's a lot of used textbooks, but it seems like almost every major player in the game now is offering used textbook rentals, uh, digital copies, so you could get a, a, a rental for like a semester and pay like $30 instead of having to pay like 200 something dollars for it. Do you think that that ebooks are directly responsible for the eroding of the used ebook or for for the used book marketplace? I think that these markets are colliding uh, and that given the choice between used books and an inexpensive ebook, you know, people now have more options. I haven't seen any numbers yet that confirm or, or deny this, but it's certain that with ebooks, people now have more choices when it comes to books, especially on the lower end of the cost spectrum. And you know, used books are, are squarely uh, in that site, as are paperbacks. Yeah, you know, I'm, I think I, I, I agree. And I mean, I haven't really seen any figures yet myself, but I just don't think anybody's ever kind of gotten these figures because it's like you know for every big city that you know every year that there's a few used bookstores closing and used bookstore owners are not very tech savvy which is why they've been in the used book business for you know in some case i know people have been in there for like 20 years where they'll go on book buying trips all over the u.s to find like used books bring them home they'll buy used books off of like homeless people that they find in alleys you know and stuff like that and i, I know a lot of bookstores here have closed and I I kind of do wonder that if it's because of ebooks, you know, where instead of buying the paperback book on the shelf for like, you know, $12, you're buying the ebook for $2.99, $1.99, cents, you know? So um, I, I was just thinking about that. So I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it. One of the big things that came out at the tail end of last week was Michael Tamblin sending out an email who's um, one of the VPs there of Kobo, and he gave um, a status update on writing life. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Okay, so one of his kind of no most notable quotes – what he said, for those few titles that remain unavailable, some feel that we chose a path of censorship. All, all I can say is that if your dream is to publish barely legal erotica or rape fantasies, distribution is probably going to be a struggle for you. We aren't saying that you can write them, but we don't feel compelled to sell them. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting statement that – you know, I guess Kobo had to do this and they had to kind of come out with some policy changes because up until the firestorm that erupted with their erotica and with Cools and WH Smith just shutting down their ebook store and you would be hard pressed to go a day without you know, 10 or 15 new major publications like The Guardian or The Daily Mail uh, reporting on this. So it seems like Kobo is now really sort of saying now that they have like policies in place for this type of content. Whereas a lot of other ebook stores like Amazon, they have older sort of antiqu- antiquated you know, policies for this, but they don't really seem to be doing too much or at least publicly saying too much. Whereas Kobo has been very vocal in this whole media uproar, mainly because WH Smith licenses the Kobo bookstore. 
what do you think about sort of Michael's statements here about not feeling compelled to, you know, distribute people's ebooks? I think that it's a business decision, and well, we will see if Kobo was right in making that decision. Clearly, there was a big backlash to finding uh, content that might be uh, on the extreme side of the erotica spectrum, or I hate to sort of classify it anyway, but things that more than most more people found objectionable than than some erotica. Uh, and I think he's absolutely right to say that Kobo doesn't have to sell it if it doesn't want to. Uh, you know, Kobo's running a private business. It's not the only distributor of, of books. And, you know, there, there are many uh, bookstores that don't sell uh, that kind of material. And, you know, people who produce it have found other ways to uh, get it out to readers. Um, you know, I, I think that his email was very even-handed and, you know, careful not to offend people who, you know, are interested in free speech and careful not to offend people who are sort of uh, self-publishing diehards who think that, you know, a company like Kobo really should do anything uh, indie authors want it to do. Um, but I think it's a business decision. And, you know, likely the company was making some money off of selling stuff like this. It's impossible to say how much. Um, will the company make less money now? Uh, I, I don't know, uh, but the, it, we'll certainly find out. And I think a company like Kobo that has international aspirations, that wants to compete with Amazon on the international stage, um, probably does need to sort of clean up its act to make itself a little bit more family-friendly if it isn't already. Do you think that all this negative press that's really kind of hit Kobo hard, I guess, the last month or so now. Um, it's been almost about a month. Do you really think that this has like hurt their bottom line or has hurt their image? I don't think that it's really going to hurt their image or bottom line too much. Uh, it depends on how much or, uh, how much uh, of this content that that Kobo was selling. Um, if it was a huge amount of the company's profits, then I don't think. Uh, then, then it, yeah, it will, it will affect the bottom line. Uh, the company has told me that roughly 10 to 12% of its worldwide ebook sales revenues come from self-published ebooks. You know, we've learned that uh, through an analysis from Digital Book World and BookLamp that um, roughly a third or a little bit less than a third of uh, self-published uh, ebooks that the company analyzed are quote-unquote erotica, and that of that 30 or so percent, uh, almost 10% uh, had themes of incest or bestiality. Um, so if you just kind of do all the math there and apply it to that 10, 12% Kobo number, um, you know, you're looking at something like, uh, you know, less than 1% of its revenues uh, being affected by this, if all those books go away and, and sort of the ratios line up. Um, so I don't think that it's going to, or re really even less than half a percent. So I don't think it's going to hurt the bottom line. Now, reputationally, I think with, uh, most people are going to forget about this. The group that may not forget about this is uh, self-publishing authors. Um, now, Amazon was very quiet on this whole thing. Now, Amazon has also had its, its own struggles with the same exact kind of content, uh, maybe even worse than Kobo if you, if you look at some of the things that have happened. Um, but at the end of the day, what are some of these indie authors going to do? I mean, Amazon, number one, but Barnes & Noble, Apple, Kobo, etc., that's their lifeline to any sales that they're going to have. Um, you know, by all reports, those stores move the vast majority of self-published works. So at the end of the day, what are you going to do? Are you going to have, hold a moral stand and say, well, if someone who wants to publish a, a book about non-consensual uh, rape and incest um, can't publish on Kobo, then neither will I. And I think most authors will be fine with it at the end of the day. I've talked to a number of people 
about sort of Kobo's reputation and about this whole erotica thing and your average person, you know, talking to um, a number of my friends, a number of just random people I've pulled like on the street. A lot of people are just blissfully unaware of any of this that's happened just because, say, in Canada, there really hasn't been a lot of mainstream media coverage of this, despite the fact that Kobo was they're Canadian based, you know, they're, they're headquartered in Toronto. It's sort of with Blackberry news in Canada. It's very easy to read even just your free daily paper that, you know, you get at the tube or, or the subway or the bus stops and not read about Blackberry. But with Kobo, it didn't really get a lot of coverage here in Canada with mainstream press. It seemed to have gotten the majority of coverage in the UK because it may primarily affected a huge, well-known UK chain of bookstores that just happened to sell eBooks. So I, I agree with you. I would probably say that, you know, uh, Kobo isn't the only game in town, but when it comes to like self-publishing with like Amazon and Kobo, they account for a large percentage of, you know, um, the distributors that that indies end up going through. And it would be interesting to see if they maintain this philosophy because it's kind of well to kind of try to quell the firestorm with a lot of public statements that Kobo has made. I think they've made like three in the, like the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to see a year from now if they still maintain this philosophy or whether they're just trying to, you know, um, say that, oh, yeah, you know, we're wholesome, we're family friendly, we don't really make a ton of money from like, these erotica books. But a year from now, you know, things may change as, as people forget about this. Absolutely, and and I really think that unless this flares up again, and it very well might, uh, this is going to be sort of a blip on the radar for these companies. But it does open up a big issue of how are they going to deal with this because people aren't going to stop trying to put this content onto their stores. So the ongoing story for for us in the in the industry is, you know, what are these companies going to do to police and and basically censor their stores, uh, and will there be backlash in the in, in the trade or 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 with uh, with readers? And I, only time will tell. But this is that's something that will be ongoing over the next few years. You know, when it comes to backlash from the writers that are actually writing this, how much clout do they really have? You know, um, I would be, I would probably say that if all of these sort of like writers banded together, like these hardcore erotica authors banded together, how seriously would they be taken by anybody uh, on their well, right to I, publish? I think, yeah, I mean, I think a company like Kobo. Uh, doesn't really care. They, they'll they'll say, you know, okay hardcore erotica writers, you're publishing stuff we don't want to sell anyways, so you know you should maybe make your own bookstore. Um, but I think that if all self-published authors banded together and so that they wouldn't patronize you know, stores that were completely censorship-free, that, that would be bad for the retailers. But of course, it would be really bad for the, the self-published authors too because you know, that's where they make all their money. Yeah, speaking of self-publishing, Smashwords and CEO Mark Coker actually gave some interesting statistics. Uh, It had to do with Oyster, which is a company that we have actually talked about a few times. If our listeners aren't too familiar, Oyster is pretty well one of the more successful net 
Netflix for eBooks kind of concepts out there. They have about a hundred thousand books. They charge about nine ninety five a month. A number of big publishers have actually jumped on board, contributing mainly backlist titles. Uh, but Smashwords said that any of their authors that have books on Oyster will actually earn sixty percent of your book's retail list price if an Oyster subscriber reads more than 10% of the book starting from the beginning of the book forward. What do you think about that? Well, this is, you know, now we're starting to see the veil of secrecy rise from these subscription business models. So um, this is something insiders have known for a little while about how these things work. Um, you know, we talked to the CEO of Scribd, uh, Trip Adler, a couple weeks ago, um, about this issue, and he revealed to us that the, what it, the deal that the company has with publishers is basically if, if you read the book, if someone reads the book, the publisher gets paid as if someone bought the book. And you'd figure that authors will, would share in that in some way. And of course, it depends on author contracts and such. Um, and that's the model. And I, and I think it's safe to assume, and this is what I'm hearing in the back chatter, that, that like HarperCollins, you know, the major publisher that's gotten into bed with some of these companies, is getting a better deal than uh, you know, some of the smaller publishers involved. And I, and I don't know whether the self-published authors are getting a better or worse deal uh, either, but basically now we know what, what the deal is, that if somebody quote-unquote reads a book, and the definition of that I'm sure is determined uh, by very complicated formulas by the companies, um, you can't just like download it and, and read a couple pages, yeah. I'm sure there's more to it than that, um, then, then the, the rights holder gets paid as if uh, the book had been purchased. And I think that if that is the model going forward, if a company like Oyster or Scribd can, can make it sustainable, um, then that, that is a pretty good business model for publishers. Uh, I, I don't see how it necessarily undercuts um, you know, what they do um, very heavily. And I think it also offers them the opportunity to get discovered a little bit more. It's another place where people can try things out without risk. They can um, you know, download a number of books and read a, a little bit of it and then, and then see if they like it and, then, uh, and then, then move on if they don't. And so I think people will look at a lot more books and download a lot more books and sample a lot more books if they are subscribed to that site because for them it costs them the same no matter what. And you know, who knows, maybe they'll get 10% into it or whatever and the publisher will get paid anyway even if the person would have looked at a sample on Amazon or something else and then not have bought the book eventually. So my last question that I have for you about this is we've been hearing a lot about Netflix and Spotify for ebook subscription services really for about three years. A lot of people have tried. A lot of people have gotten millions of dollars of VC capital, tried and failed. Do you think that publishers now are more accepting of this concept now more than ever or do you think they, they still have a long way to go? Well, I think you're right on both counts. Publishers are more accepting of this concept today than ever before. Um, you know, look at HarperCollins has gotten involved with, with Scribd and, and Oyster, and I think a lot of publishing observers would have said that would be impossible two years ago. Yeah, totally. Um, so, so it's happening to some degree. And I think you also have to understand that some publishers have been experimenting with subscription models for a while. I mean, there's Safari Books Online, which is a subscription for professionals, uh, technical manuals and, and books. Um, you know, F&W Media, my employer, uh, has a number of subscription sites aimed at very verticalized communities like artists and painters. So you can subscribe for a certain amount of money per month to access to, to hundreds of relevant uh, ebooks and other pieces of digital content. Um, but at the same time, I do think we have a little while to go before you see other quote-unquote big five publishers sign up to these 
um, subscription sites. And I think that you know HarperCollins um, is being very aggressive lately with its experimentation and digital moves. Yeah. But I think if you look at the history of what's happening with eBooks, it's sort of the opposite of what what happened with CD-ROM in the book publishing industry in the 90s. You know, the companies that that jump in two feet first seem to be doing pretty well. The companies that invested in understanding, you know, ebook workflow and XML workflows and tagging early on before it was certain that that was the kind of thing that we were all going for, those companies are better prepared. And if you look at the companies that got into bed with Amazon uh, early on in the game and, and continue to play ball with them in experimentation, those companies by and large do pretty well. Um, you know, by all reports, the uh, Kindle Owner's Lending Library uh, was extremely profitable for, for some of the big name authors and publishing companies that got involved early on. Um, and now that there are more players involved, you know, it's, it's become an incremental business for them, which isn't to say that it's bad, um, but we might see that HarperCollins, if it has some big books in that subscription site, um, that those books are going to get a lot of the views, a lot of the downloads, and therefore a lot of the revenue is going to go to a company like HarperCollins. And as bigger publishers get more involved, um, the, the more that the revenue will be divided up. But if you talk to the, the CEO of Scribd, he'll tell you he thinks this is a billion-dollar business. He thinks that they can get several million uh, subscribers per month for just their site, and it can turn into a billion-dollar business. So um, if that's a billion dollars coming in uh, to Scribd, you've got to imagine a, a healthy portion of that's going to go out to publishers. Yeah, so I guess Scribd and Oyster really have a lot riding on their success. You know, if they even make close to a billion dollars, you have to think that a lot of boutique publishers, smaller publishers, uh, people like Bain Books, you know, um, kind of fly under the radar, but they've been around for like you know, almost 20 years pushing ebooks. You got to imagine that it's going to attract people like that, you know, to put their content on uh, a company like Oyster or, or Scribd and, and try to cash in on the whole ebook subscription process. I think that's what these companies are, are banking on. And um, I'm actually going to come out with a, with a blog post um, on Forbes in the not-too-distant future where I speak to um, an analyst at a, at a major consulting firm about his thoughts on the subscription model and you know where it's going, what it means. And, and it's a little bit counter to what many people in the trade are, are thinking. Um, you know, he sees that there is a lot of room for this model, and it's one of those things where people aren't going to think about it like, well, I buy about five books a year, so this doesn't really make financial sense for me. They'll, they'll think to themselves, yeah, I'd love to have this other uh, service where I can just sample content and have a book to read anytime I want uh, in my pocket. Um, without having to think about how much it's going to cost me. Um, so it might be a, a new kind of way for people to um, you know, engage with books and engage with thinking about and reading books, and, and, and we may see it take off. Um, as with all of these things and everything that we discuss, time will tell. And you and I know from observing this now for a little while that uh, you know, the ebook business is, is full of surprises. Anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, Netflix has taught us that People don't mind paying $9.95 a month even if they don't even watch a movie in a given month because it's such a low fee. Uh, Hulu, uh, same thing, Spotify. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that have sort of pushed that you know, Netflix style for movies, for, for music, and now books. Books is sort of like new ground, and I kind of wonder in a year from now if people are going to buy into that, you know, because you look at sort of what a lot of these companies are offering and there are a lot of backlist titles you're not really going to find the newest book that just came out this week 
on there. But it's the same story for Netflix. You know, just because a movie just hit Blu-ray and DVD doesn't mean that Netflix is going to have it because they have only certain agreements with certain companies for both front list and back list, you know, titles and things like that. So this is a brave new market, and it'll be interesting to see the way that things go. Uh, c- continuing the trend now of ebooks. Enhanced ebooks, children's ebooks, books with multimedia elements, interactive maps, videos, audios. It seemed to have got a lot of traction about a year ago. Everybody was talking about enhanced ebooks. Barnes and Noble was really pushing hard their sort of interactive book section, and it seemed to have tapered off. What do you know about what publishers are or publishers are thinking now when it comes to, you know, EPUB three enhanced ebooks? Well, there's been a lot of chatter about that this week, um, partially, I think, because of a blog post on Digital Book World that actually got very well read and a lot of comments about you know, what the future of this is. And this is something publishers have been thinking about and talking about for a really long time. And financially, it just hasn't really paid off for most of them in most cases. Um, and so our blogger wrote about why publishers shouldn't give up on enhanced content yet. Um, and and if, I could, if I could sort of uh, channel him, I think there are a couple of reasons that he would say if he were here, um, one of which is that you know, the, the, the devices and the software on the devices hasn't yet caught up. Um, but as more people demand these kinds of reading experiences, and, and there's one or two really big successes, um, that they will catch up. And, and Kobo, um, according to the Book Industry Study Group, which tracks these things, really has taken the lead in providing um, support for EPUB 3 in particular, although uh, all, all the devices have uh, support for some interactivity uh, in eBooks. And I think the other thing is that children now um, are reading a lot of enhanced eBooks and book apps and you know you could make the argument to say that well the children uh, of today are the adult readers of tomorrow, and perhaps this means that they will uh, want to have some of those enhanced experiences. Um, I hate enhanced ebooks. Fair enough. Um, well, why do you hate them? Well, maybe hates too strong of a word. I have an utter disdain. It's um, it seemed like it was just all about hype. You know, enhanced ebooks is like the next big thing. Let's all just jump into it, not really knowing what they're doing. I have to admit that probably kids' books were probably done the best when it comes to it, just because, like, you know, the big bubbly cartoony, the sort of, you know, if you're reading an enhanced ebook of SpongeBob SquarePants, you know, you could have some uh, animation there from the TV show, you know, totally cool. You know, I, I, I dig that. But when it comes to um, when it comes to like anything else, I I don't see the value in it. I just think it, it is like one of those buzzwords that everyone's just trying to capitalize on, and and they're just pushing subpar content. Y- you know, I've been tracking the digital industry for a number of years, and I would be. I can't even think of a single great enhanced ebook that I read, and it was like this is. This is championing the genre. This book is like a masterpiece. I, I I can't even think of a single enhanced ebook title. And I, I've read a lot by you know Disney and, and Pixar and you know uh, by a lot of these companies that spent you know a significant amount of money and had like 30 people working on it. it totally unmemorable. 
It, it's like watching like an, a, a sitcom episode and forgetting ex- everything that happened like the next day. I, I just don't think that there's like a future in enhanced ebooks other than maybe kids' books and maybe uh, cookbooks. Yeah, I mean, I think that you, when you think about nonfiction for adults, um, which is where a lot of these enhancements seem to make a lot of sense, um, like for cookbooks or how-to books, you also have to ask the question, you know, 10 years ago, why did somebody go and buy a cookbook? 20 years ago, 100 years ago, or whenever cookbooks started being sold. They, I think they went and bought a cookbook mostly because they wanted some recipes. They wanted some ideas. Um, now when you think about where people go for recipes, I think the Internet, uh, and there are a lot of free recipes on the Internet, is, is a big place. There are a lot of websites that cater to different specialized kinds. So if you think about why people want a cookbook or why people want some of that kind of information, um, before you decide that it's a good fit for enhanced ebooks, I would also consider you know, how people find that information today. So I'm not so sure it even makes sense in, for those kinds of books, but, but it just might. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is that you know, it could be that this hasn't taken off yet because we just haven't seen you know, what the genre can do. I think that um, the movie Gravity might be a good example that's out now. I, I think most people that think about it don't really love the, the 3D experience that's being presented in a lot of movie theaters today, for, especially for action and science fiction movies and some kids' movies. Um, but apparently Gravity kind of changed that a little bit. And I haven't seen it in 3D myself, but what I'm told is that it, it's a new kind of way of thinking about using 3D from a filmmaking standpoint. Maybe it's just that, you know, ebooks haven't been experimented with enough or in the right way to make those enhanced experiences, you know, the right kinds of experiences. I mean, a year from now, we might understand, like, the kind of book that really needs enhancement and really wants enhancement. Like, for instance, um, you know, a, a thriller or a mystery book might be right for a certain kind of enhancement that we just haven't seen yet. And when we do, it'll click. So I understand what you're saying. I think a lot of people in the industry agree with you. Um, but I, I'm not sold yet that, that it's completely over. I think that uh, we'll see some more experimentation and that when we do, we'll know more. Yeah, I mean, it's like when it comes to cookbooks, I see more people relying on apps. Um, almost everybody that I know that learns new recipes, and I'm one of them. I, I For the longest time, I kind of resisted cooking, kind of relied on takeout and all that stuff. And I guess in the last probably two months, I've started cooking every day. And this is something sort of new for me because uh, – yeah, I just I haven't really been bitten by the cooking bug before, but now that I have like an, an iPad and iPhone, I'm downloading like cooking apps that have like a thousand plus recipes, or a cooking app that just specializes in chicken, or or this and that. And I would probably say that I'm getting more value out of that because it's generating like a, a shopping list for me. Uh, right on my phone, the phone's always in my pocket. I could say, okay, I need I need a pound of this. I need a handful of this. You know, I need these sort of spices. Good to go. An enhanced uh, like cooking book. It's just like it's basically showing me how to cook the meal. And I I, I think that the future is probably apps. And I mean, it, not even the future. I mean, it's now. It's all about apps. You know, like the. I guess the big thing right now is the Jamie Oliver cookbook uh, that just came out, which is basically an ebook, and it's at the top of the bestseller list in a lot of markets right now. And it's it's just your standard ebook. And I mean, if Jamie Oliver, who is pretty well one of the 
apex is right now of celebrity cooks. If he's not buying into the whole enhanced ebook concept, who is? Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think we're also seeing cookbooks uh, as a genre have evolved a little bit to be more than just about recipes. They're about you know lifestyles, cultures, experiences. Um, there are a lot of books that surround food that have been very popular and that aren't about recipes these days. Um, so it really is moving in a lot of directions. Um, but I, you know, you should also consider with cookbooks. You know, do you want to take your $600 tablet device and put it right next to the, the boiling uh, tomato sauce? Um, do you want to have that in the kitchen there? Whereas with cookbooks, you know, I think people uh, don't don't really. Uh, care as much as if they get ruined. I think that's, uh, there's, it's understood that they're going to be around food. Um, so there's a lot of stuff to consider here, but I think the market will tell us what to do eventually. Okay, so before we wrap up the show for today, um, if people are into Kobo devices, they have just launched their Kobo Arc 7 and Kobo Arc 7 HD. Uh, you can get these, I believe, at indie bookstores in the States and at Indigo Chapter stores in Canada. And it's, they're slowly starting to filter their way overseas, but you won't really see a higher availability for about a month from now. Uh, these two tablets, we have extensive hands-on reviews on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash reader and also on our main website uh, you can check out some of our really comprehensive reviews where we kind of compare them to other popular tablets on the market as well as the previous generation Kobo tablets just to kind of give you some thoughts on if you have the older model is it really worth it to upgrade or not or should you perhaps just wait so we kind of present all of the details there so you might want to check that out um, also stay tuned to the website uh, in the the coming days as we have some big news and big announcements to uh, hit down the pipe. Uh, Jeremy, what do you have cooking there at uh, Digital Book World? Oh my god, so much. Uh, two things I'd love to tell people about. One is tomorrow at noon is our webcast on marketing backlist ebooks, and I think it's going to be fantastic and everyone should attend. Um, and the second thing is Digital Book World 2014 is right around the corner, and we have just today launched the sweepstakes. Um, for those of you who go to digitalbookworld.com um, and sign up for the sweepstakes, and all you, all you have to do is sign up for our DBW Daily e-newsletter. You can enter as many times as you want. You will be entered uh, with a chance to win a, uh, a trip to New York City for Digital Book World. We give you an all-access pass ticket. Uh, we give you a ticket to the uh, Digital Book Awards Evening Gala, and you also get $500 to help you get there. If you have already bought a ticket, you will get your money back, and you will get $500 to, to help you out. And if you live in New York, well, you can just pocket that $500 cash. Uh, use it for taxis, I suppose. Um, so we're really excited about that. We want everyone to enter uh, digitalbookworld.com slash sweepstakes is I believe the URL, but you can also go to Digital Book World and under the drop-down DBW Daily uh, sweepstakes. And, and, and Michael, I'd love for you to share that with your audience far and wide because we would love to see all of you at Digital Book World 2014 in New York. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Digital Book World, it's been going on for a number of years. And I it's guess... It's our fifth year, fifth year anniversary. And it's uh, the premier digital conference uh, probably in the U.S., you know, that focuses just on digital. Um, and with the demise of O'Reilly Tools for Change, Digital Book World is pretty well in the U.S. the only game in town in terms of 
the future current state of affairs of digital publishing you have a lot of really uh, intelligent speakers that are going to be there that live and breathe the industry so if you're already in the industry if you're thinking about gravitating towards digital or if you're you have a vested interest in ebooks and publishing in general this is a can't miss event and you could check out the details on this uh, radio show at uh, goodyreader.com for full details on this contest that Jeremy has just told you about as well as some links to um, how you could attend this year's festival in January in New York. So you've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show and you have just been brought up to date on the last few days of digital publishing news. Everybody take care. <laughs>